Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Go ahead and take out your outlines. If you're new to Crosswinds, I want to welcome you. It's great to have you. We are back in the Gospel of Mark. We were gone from Mark for two weeks, but we are returning back to it today. Last time when we were in the Gospel of Mark, we saw that Jesus was the original surfer and that he literally walked on water. And we had a chance to study that passage. In that passage, we learned that God's or Jesus' divinity is just showing all over the place. Not only did Jesus walk on water, but for a second time, he instantly and completely calmed a storm. The parallel passage in the Gospel of John also told us that he instantly transported the boat from the lake to the shore, sort of like the Star Trek transporter thing. <laughs> That's a miracle that Jesus did. His divinity shows all over the place. But the other part we learned uh, in that passage is not just that Jesus is clearly God, because he does what only God can do, but that Jesus loves and cares for you and for me. Because you notice Jesus was very attentive to his apostles when they are on the lake, when they are going through the midst of the storm. Jesus is the one who came to the rescue for them in that storm. Isn't that what Jesus does for us today? Doesn't many times when we pray to him and we call out to him in our times of desperation and need, has he come to the rescue for you? Anybody here? Yes. Many times he, he does that. And even in those times when we face the worst storm of all, the storm of death, Jesus' promise is because of our faith and trust in him, he will come to the rescue then. He will bring peace in the midst of that terrible storm. And he will transport us from the midst of that storm safely home to heaven itself. What a great God and Savior we have. This morning, we continue in our study and we're picking, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the first 13 verses in that passage. At this point, Jesus and his apostles are now on the west side of the lake. They landed at the village of Gennesaret, which is just south of Capernaum. And they have worked their way north into Capernaum. And what we have here at this point when we move from Mark chapter 6 into Mark chapter 7 is a very important transition in this book. In Mark 6, we have Jesus is literally at the height of his popularity. Remember, he fed the 5,000, which we learned actually is more like feeding the 20,000 people because 5,000 only counted the men. It did not include the women and children. And he made fish and chips from a little boy's lunch for everyone. The Gospel of John tells us that after that, the people literally tried to make him king, and he refused. And in the flow of the Gospel of Mark, from that point forward, Jesus' popularity begins to slowly decline. Not that it goes away, because clearly there are other passages we will see as we continue our way through that Jesus is definitely popular, and there's the triumphal entry itself, but it's beginning to wane. And as we get into Mark chapter 7, what we see beginning to get traction is the resistance 
the hatred of the Pharisees and the scribe against, scribes against Jesus. So there's this transition that's beginning to take place as we cross, cross this chapter marker. Now, rather than actually read the first 13 verses, because we're in a narrative passage, I'm going to do one of the things you can do in a narrative, which is we're just going to study our way through the text and let the text unfold in front of us. So if you're in your outlines, here's the first point. The first thing we see is the scribes, the Pharisees and scribes criticized Jesus' disciples for not following their tradition. In verse 1, it says, Now the Pharisees gathered to him, and with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Let's pause right there. Scribes have come from Jerusalem. This is important. This is an official delegation of the biggest, brightest, and the best brains in Judaism have now come to small town Capernaum to check out Jesus. This is notable. These are the guys that write the books. These are the people that are the most prestigious folks out there. And what has happened is oh, the local scribes, the local Pharisees, have asked for help. We're having trouble discrediting Jesus and getting rid of Jesus. Please come and help us figure out what to do with Jesus. So the, the scribes from Jerusalem itself have made a trip out there. At this point, you need to remember that the Jewish leaders are beginning to realize they have a crisis on their hand because we have seen just prior to this that popularity of Jesus has been continuing to rise we have just passed the scene where he has fed 20,000 people who want to make him their king. The Jewish leaders realize we have to do something to discredit him. Hopefully the scribes from Jerusalem can help us do that. And here's what happens. Here's the analysis of the scribes from Jerusalem. And they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Essentially, after their lengthy investigation of Jesus, these big brains have concluded that Jesus did not collude with the Russians. Well, really, that's sort of what we have going on here. They could not find a biblical issue to which they could fault him on, so they try to catch him on what appears to be more of a technicality. His apostles, some of them, are not properly washing their hands before they eat. And you're thinking, wait a minute here. These are the biggest brains, the, the best brains in Judaism, faulting Jesus' apostles for hand washing? I mean, that's something my mother would get after me for when I was growing up. Make sure you wash your hands before you eat. How could they take such an interest in a petty thing like this. Well, for you and I, we see it for what it is, which is truly a petty thing. As we begin to unravel this mystery, we'll see for them it was actually quite an important thing. This hand-washing before eating, it really wasn't a matter of sanitation. It was a matter of ceremony. It was a matter of tradition. 
People knew that if their hands were really dirty and then they ate, they would get sick. So if their hands were really dirty, they obviously washed their hands before they ate. That's not something that's just uh, knowledgeable to us in the modern day. That was common sense even in the ancient day. But this particular kind of hand washing is what I called traditional hand washing. In the book of Leviticus, priests were to wash their hands ceremonially. Uh, the purpose of priests doing this was more to indicate the need to be free of sin in their duty. And what had happened was this ceremonial hand washing that was originally only given to the priests in Jerusalem to file, follow had actually begun to be pressed by the Jewish leaders onto the common people that the common people should also do ceremonial hand washings in their everyday life. Now at this point, Mark, who's he's writing to Gentiles, he's writing to Gentiles in the city of Rome who are not familiar with the Jewish hand washing rituals, he sort of steps out of the story and he provides an explanatory note about this in verses 3 and 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Let me give some history on this tradition of the Jews that is uh, grown up around the Word of God. About 200 years before Jesus, what we find is this particular tradition, the idea of the hand-washing tradition, uh, began to move from being something only the priests did to what the scribes and Pharisees uh, actually pressured the common people to do, to do the same kind of ritual hand-washings that would take place in the temple. Just so you know, as I said, this was not a matter of sanitation. The amount of water that was used in these hand washings could be as little as one and a half eggshells full. You're not going to clean much with that much water. The way this hand washing looked is you'd pour water into a hand and then you'd hold it up until it ran off your elbow. You'd pour water in the hand and then you'd hold it down until it ran off the finger. And then you would take the fist of the other hand and you would scrub or wash the hand you had wet. That was the way this ritual hand washing took place. It was done before every meal and on a lengthy meal. It was even done before between courses of the meal. Now to remind you again, this was never prescribed for everyday ordinary people in the Bible. It was only originally given to the priest and then forced on the common people. To make it even more exciting, when people went in public, the hand-washing ceremony moved to a completely different level because there they could have touched a Gentile or touched a Samaritan and become contaminated. And they literally had to immerse themselves completely in water and get out of water to be ritually and symbolically made clean. It also meant you had to specifically ritually watch your cups and your bowls and your ditches and even the, the, the furniture you used to eat upon had to be watched in a ritual way. 
according to the traditions of the elders. The Mishnah, which we'll talk about in a, little bit, um, a little bit later in the message, had 30 chapters on how to properly, ritually wash your dishes. All kinds of laws and rules. Let me give you some historical background on these Jewish traditions. How did they start? And then where did they go? Here's the way Jewish traditions started. These particular traditions started actually after um, the Jews had been in captivity in Babylon. God gave Moses the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, which had all the ceremonies in it. But what happened was God's people did not obey God's word, and as a result, they were brought into captivity in, in Babylon. After 70 years, God brought them back because of his grace. And then you had scribes such as Ezra, and his job was to read the word and teach the word and explain the word to the people. So if people would know God's word, then they wouldn't violate God's word and hopefully they wouldn't end up in captivity once again. But in subsequent generations, scribes after Ezra took it upon themselves to build what they call was a fence, a fence around the law. It was extra additional laws beyond God's laws. And the idea was that if you could teach people to try and obey the fence of the law, our traditions, then if you broke a tradition, you still weren't even close to actually breaking God's law itself, and we would be, we'd be safe. And so they began adding to God's word. They began taking things in God's word and stretching it, such as taking the, the ritual washings for priests alone, and applying it to all people, not just the priestly people. And that was a desire of what they wanted to do. This was called the traditions of the elders in the days of Jesus that had grown up around God's word, that had actually begun to obscure and cloud God's word and take people away from God's word. After the days of Jesus, in around 200 A.D., what happened was a rabbi actually decided to take these traditions and compile them into one place. Rabbi Yehuda was his name, and he compiled it into what is called the Mishnah. It's a big collection of all these traditions. And the Mishnah, he didn't do any editing on these things, so it contained some of the traditions of wise rabbis, and also it contained traditions of foolish rabbis and crazy rabbis. It was just a big, huge big collection of traditions that the rabbis expected you to follow. And since it was so confusing, they actually eventually wrote another book called the Gemara. The Gemara was an explanation of the Mishnah because the Mishnah was too confusing to follow. And eventually from there, they decided to combine the Mishnah and the Gemara into something called the, the Talmud, which is, of course, just as big as both of them put together. The Jerusalem Talmud was the official Talmud. It was a big, huge collection of rules. And if that wasn't big enough, in Babylon, the rabbis there decided to make their own Talmud, which was four times larger than the official ba Jerusalem Talmud itself. Now you think, what's going on here? You have traditions and rules 
added to God's word, that were designed to be a fence around God's word, that have become huge, that have become large, that have become burdensome, that are far beyond anything God ever required. But as a result, people are actually being led away from God's word. Because people don't honor alone know their Bibles. What they know is their Talmud and their Mishnah. Not what God requires, but what other rabbis required of them. In verse 5, it says this. And the scribes, or the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? There's what we talked about, these traditions. But eat with defiled hands. So the issue is not that Jesus is breaking Scripture. Jesus is breaking their traditions, their fences, their extra rules that they have put beyond Scripture, such as eating with unwashed hands. I mentioned to you that what happens when people do this is people end up starting to follow these human-made rules instead of God's Word itself. And if you look in the Talmud, you can find that is exactly what happened. Let me quote for you out of the Talmud. The words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. It is a greater crime to transgress the words of the school of Rabbi Hillel than the words of Scripture. My son, attend to the words of the scribes more than the words of the law. These traditions have begun to replace Scripture. They were originally started with the intent of protecting Scripture. Now they're taking its place. Also, here's another example. Whoever is firmly implanted in the land of Israel, who speaks the holy language, who eats his food in purity, which means as required by ritual hand-washing, and recites the Shema morning and evening, is assured of life, in the world to come. You want to be saved? Make sure you live in Israel. Speak the language and wash your hands. I'll give you another example. Rabbi, uh, here's another rabbi. I can't pronounce his name. Whoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his food with washed hands may rest assured that he shall receive eternal life. You want to go to heaven? Do your ritual hand-washing according to my tradition and you'll be there. You see how these things have begun to replace the Word of God? Started with good intent, but tradition has replaced Scripture itself. Jesus comes along and He answers them. Jesus disagreed with traditions that were given authority equal to God's Word. And He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. There's two points he makes in this section. I'm going to make those two points, but the first point that we're going to touch on briefly, you need to know is the, the point we're going to focus on all of next week. So that's why we're not going to spend too much time on it. But here's the first point he makes. Lip worship 
that is not heart worship is useless worship. Lip worship that is not heart worship is useless worship. This is what happened to people in Isaiah's day. The people were all concerned with going through external ceremonies, but they weren't focusing on their heart because God cares about our heart and where it is. The same thing was happening in Jesus' day. These rabbis, they were all concerned about the external ceremonies. Have you washed your hands properly, followed by ritual? That's not what matters. What God cares about is our hearts. That didn't just take place in Isaiah's day and in Jesus' day, but it takes place today, doesn't it? When you come in to worship, and we're here and we're singing together as a congregation, when we're singing words of worship to God, where is your heart? Your lips may be moving, but is your heart connecting with gratitude, awe, praise and adoration to Jesus, our Savior? If there's a disconnect between your lips and your heart, that's not what God wants. Sometimes people have said to me, hey, that song we sung on Sunday morning, we've got to sing that more often. Oh, really? What did you like about it? I love the melody. Okay. What about the words? I didn't care about the words, but it sounded really good. You're missing it. That's lip worship, not heart worship. We want good words and we want good melody. Because what should be happening is when we are singing words of worship, those words should help us put words of praise, adoration, and worship to Jesus, our Savior. They should help us form the gratitude of our hearts into words. That's the purpose of worship. It doesn't just happen where lips and hearts disconnect in singing, but it can happen when someone like myself is teaching and preaching. I know how it works. I've sat in the pew. Pastor's up front teaching, and you're looking forward, and he thinks that you're really attentive, but your mind is actually a million miles away, and you're replaying the scenes from the movie you saw the night before in your head. Or you're actually preparing the meal and planning what you're going to serve for lunch right after church because people are going to be there. These are the kind of things we do. Or we're thinking about the sports game we're going to watch later in the afternoon. So on the outside, we look like we're actually loving and attentive to God's Word, but on the inside, we're far from God's Word. No one else knows, but God's the one who knows. And God's the one who cares. God doesn't want the externals of worship. Folks, he wants your heart in worship. Because the heart is what matters. Look what the scriptures say. And Jesus answered, The most important is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Next week, we're going to spend an entire message on what it means to love God from our heart, not just on our external life. 
So we'll come back to that then. But let's look at the second point that Jesus makes. Traditions that take on as much authority as the Bible will lead us away from the Bible. That is what happened in Isaiah's day. We just studied how that was happening in Jesus' day when the tradition of ritual hand-washing was now replacing the authority of Scripture itself. And the Bible tells us this can happen today. Now, not that traditions are started off with a bad intent. They're not. They're always started with a good intent. The traditions of the Jews in Jesus' day were started off with the intent of being a fence around the law to help protect people from disobeying the law. But over time, they had come to replace the law. And that's what traditions can do. Ever so slowly, they take on more authority than Scripture itself. Let me give you an example, because that's what Jesus does next in the text. Corbin. Corbin is an illustration of tradition coming before the Bible in Jesus' day. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have given to me is Corbin, or you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many such things. Corbin uh, simply means offering. Now, in that day, uh, the tradition of Corbin was a little bit like the concept of deferred giving. Like we would put maybe a church or an organization in our will. When we die, we want part of our proceeds or all of our assets from our life to go to that particular organization. Now, what would happen in Jesus' day is this tradition of Corbin had grown up, and you could declare your possessions as Corbin. That meant you could use them for whatever you wanted to in your life, but ultimately they belong to God. So in your lifetime, you are not allowed to give them away. You are not allowed to sell them or to give them to somebody else because they were no longer ultimately yours. They were ultimately dedicated to the temple. They were given to God. That was the tradition, but what happens when it comes into conflict with God's word itself? Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, is one of the Ten Commandments. And the commandment is to honor your father and mother. In fact, it's also says in the Old Testament that if someone was to dishonor their father and mother, the death penalty could actually take place for them because the honoring of your parents is such a serious thing, especially in God's eyes. Understand that commandment was not originally given for little kids to honor their young parents. It was intended for adult children to honor their aging parents. In that day, there was no such thing as social security. When someone became old and unable to work, they were literally on the street unless their children took them in, unless their children took care of them. What happened was this. There would be people that were middle-aged children, and they would have possessions that they had declared to God to be Corbin, 
And then their aging parents became sick. And they needed resources to care for their aging parents. And they'd say, well, maybe I could sell this field and use that money to help my mom and dad. And the religious leaders said, you can't do that. That's Corbin. Your money has a higher calling than taking care of your aging parents. Wait a minute. That's tradition that's taken on the same authority as the Word of God, and it's actually taken authority over the Word of God. That's not what God wants. You see the danger of what happens when you start to over-elevate tradition? Let me give you another example. We've talked about the example in Jesus' time. Let's talk about an example that's taken place over time. And that is the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is an illustration of tradition coming before the Bible in church history. Now, please, this is not meant to come across like a time to bang on the Catholic Church. That's not my point at all. I'm just trying to make a biblical point here. But here's the way it works. In church history... The Catholic Church began over time to give great authority to tradition of the church. In fact, giving so much authority to tradition in the church that it took on the same level of authority as Scripture itself and even authority beyond Scripture itself. And 500 years ago, when we had the Reformation, that was one of Martin Luther's key issues. He says, in the Catholic Church... Tradition has taken on too much authority when the authority should be in Scripture and in Scripture alone. And Martin Luther went to Mark chapter 7, where we are today, and said, look at this. This was the problem of, with God's people in Isaiah's day, where tradition had too much authority. This is the problem in Jesus' day, where tradition had too much authority. And it's the same thing that's happening in our day in the church. Tradition has taken on too much authority. And to give you an idea about the level of authority tradition holds in the Catholic Church, I put down two quotes for you. One comes right off the Catholic website, and this is it. It says, Consequently, it is not from sacred scripture alone that the church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. Therefore, both tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted and venerated with the same devotion and reverence. Isn't this what Jesus warned about? Or let me quote a Catholic scholar. It's an article of faith from a decree of the Vatican Council that tradition is a source of theological teaching distinct from Scripture and that it is infallible. Tradition is infallible, he says. It is therefore to be received with the same internal assent as Scripture, for it is the word of God. Tradition is considered the word of God in the Catholic Church. Now, let me give you an example. Too high a view of tradition has led the Catholic Church to actually having a different Bible than we hold in our hands. The Bible that we hold in the Protestant church was the same Bible used in the church for the first thousand plus years of church history. But as you get closer to the Reformation, you find that there is a, a 
priests that were teaching from other books that were not originally as accepted as Scripture. Books that were called uh, intertestamental books written between the closing of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament during that 400-year period. And um, Martin Luther said, wait a minute, we should not be teaching from uh, these books that were never accepted as God's Word. We should be teaching from the books that for over a thousand years have been accepted as God's word by the, the church. When the Catholic Church said, well, we can change that. Our tradition is just as authoritative as Scripture itself. In fact, our tradition can, let's, let's use it to make Scripture. So in 1546, at the Council of Trent, the Catholic Church got together and said, let's vote to add these intertestamental books to our Bible and make a new Bible. And all of a sudden you find in the Catholic Bible books like Tobit, Judith, First and Second Maccabees, the Wisdom of Solomon, to name a few of the books. Because tradition, remember, when it's given the same authority as Scripture, will eventually trump Scripture. And in this case, in 1546, it even changed Scripture in the Catholic Church. And this also explains why there's differences in things like purgatory, the function of the Mass. It all has to do with tradition versus Scripture. We've looked at tradition in Isaiah's day, and in Jesus' day, and in the Catholic Church over church history into modern history. What about us as the Protestant Church? What are Protestant traditions that are occasionally being placed in front of our Bible that we are holding to too dearly to the point where we're actually loving them in front of Scripture itself? Let me start with some fun ones, and then I'll get to a serious one. The fun one is this. One cup communion versus multiple little cup communions. If you go back to the 1800s, you'll find that when it came time to take communion, it was one cup, and everybody drank from the same cup, which is great when you're in a small group, but what happens when you get to have 100 people or more in the church, and you're the last guy in the line? You have some major backwash and floaties going on. And then people began to realize the way infectious disease was spread that it probably wasn't a good idea to have everybody spit in the same cup. And so you had this idea, instead of having one cup, why don't we go to multiple little cups for sanitary reasons as a way to keep people sick and not spread disease. Sounds normal. But would you believe there were some churches where the church actually split because people insisted on using one cup. Some claimed it was theological reasons, but for the most time it was tradition. You know why? We've always done it that way. And for the sake of tradition, church bodies were torn in half. Something doesn't feel right about that, does it? Another example. Sunday night services. Did you, how many grew up going to Sunday night services? Oh yeah, I always went to Sunday night services. But then over time in our culture, what happened? Sunday night services just didn't seem to work anymore. And there was replaced with things like life groups and small groups. And so churches began to shy away from that. And there were people who were leaving churches because I'm not going to go to that church. 
they're, uh, they're pagans because they don't have a Sunday night service. Now, does it say anywhere in the Bible that you must have a Sunday night service? No. It's a tradition. And how dare some people elevate tradition to such a point that you're willing to break fellowship with other Christians because of it. The presence of a pulpit. Now, we don't have a pulpit up front. We do have God's Word, and we teach from it. That's the key point. I initially started my senior pastorate ministry in a small church that had a very small stage. And out of the goodness of their heart, it was over 100 years old, they had a pulpit, and it was a huge pulpit. It took about one-third to one-half of the actual stage itself. You could hold a library underneath the preaching lectern. And the church began to get a little bit more modern. They did away with the choir and things like that. And they wanted to start with a worship team. It was really difficult to do a worship team when they were always halfway behind this massive pulpit. And so the leaders went through discussions. They talked to the church, said, we'd like to remove the pulpit and go with a sort of a small preaching lectern so we could use the worship team. Well, that didn't quite go across with everybody. Some people didn't want to do that. But the vote was to remove the pulpit. So the pulpit was removed. It was set down on the side after the church. Well, guess what magically showed up on the stage one week later? Some of the people who dissented and took their master keys came in during the week and put it back up on the stage, and it's not going to go anywhere. You know why? Because every good church must have a pulpit. Now, where does it say that in Scripture? It doesn't say that in the scripture, but it's tradition. Tradition that they had elevated to such a point they'd be willing to violate Hebrews 13, which says simply obey your leaders. Submit to them. But they were willing to disobey them because tradition was of too much importance. Let me look at the last one. A church worship style of the past or future can become a tradition in the Protestant churches that we over-elevate above Scripture itself. Sometimes we have a worship style of the past that we love dearly. Some of us have a worship style of the future that we love dearly. And when a church maybe tries something different or changes its worship style a little bit, it's amazing how many good Christians can become very upset and start to act in a very unchristlike way. Now I want to ask you, does it say anywhere in the Bible what exactly our worship style is supposed to be like? No. It says sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. That's pretty broad. But what we find is when all of a sudden our worship tradition starts to get changed people's true spiritual maturity starts to get revealed. Because when all of a sudden we're upset about the worship not being what I was used to or not what I want, all of a sudden we start gossiping to our friends. All of a sudden we start saying things that are hateful and hurtful about our brothers and sisters in Jesus. All of a sudden we start taking the prayer cards and instead of putting prayer requests on them, rewrite hate mail and if refuse to sign it and send it to the pastor. Somehow I don't think that's what would Jesus do. 
Because what happens is a tradition has become so dear to us that we start to treat our own brothers and sisters in a hateful and hurtful way. And that is just plain wrong. Tradition is holding too high a place in our hearts and lives at that time. Let me remind you, the scripture does not specify a worship style we should use. What the scriptures do very clearly specify is how we are to treat one another, especially when we have an issue of disagreement. Let me give you some examples. What does the Bible say is important, more important than our traditions? Number one, we are to love one another. This is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Folks, love is never seen between people until it is hard to display between people. You can say you love somebody all day long when it's easy. You only find out if you really love them when all of a sudden you're uncomfortable and it is hard. That's when you show love. The other thing the scriptures tell us is we are to serve one another. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The idea is the service we are to have for one another is we are to be able to do what is no, no matter how low the task, no matter how humbling it is, we are to put the needs of others in front of ourselves. We're not to be known for the worship style we prefer, but the humility and service we give to one another. We are to place other people before ourselves. And what does it say in Romans 12, 16? We are to live in harmony with one another. We are to do whatever it takes to make relationships work. When we all of a sudden walk, we all of a sudden get upset. We all of a sudden create divisions. That's not scriptural. That's not the life that Christ desires. We are to live in harmony with one another. And then it says this. We are to put up with one another. Bear with one another in love. Sometimes we have to be patient with other people. We have to bear with them. And then as it says also, we are to be quick to forgive one another and not hold a grudge forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. While the scriptures do not specify a particular worship style, let me say again, it does specify how we are to treat one another, especially in a disagreement. So let me give you the two applications that are on your outline. When tr while traditions are not wrong, we need to be careful of the place we give them. When we give traditions as much authority as the Bible they will lead us away from the Bible. That was true in Isaiah's day. That was true in Jesus' day. That was true of the Catholic Church over history. And yes, it can still take place in the Protestant Church today when things the Scripture does not specify are things we love than, more than what the Scripture does specify. Number two, at Crosswinds, we don't want to be a church known for following traditions of the past, or for chasing fads of the future. We want to be known for obeying what the Bible tells us, which is loving, serving, caring, forgiving, being patient with others, and putting them before ourselves. Because at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, that is what matters. 
And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I often give you something to ponder on and think on as the bread and the cup are are passed out and we have a chance to hold them. Here's what I want you to talk to the Lord about as you hold the bread and the cup. Ask him, Jesus, what have I loved more than you? What have I loved more than your word? What are the traditions in my life, the preferences in my life that I have let tear me away from my brothers and sisters in Jesus or speak hurtfully or harmfully to them? And if the Lord brings something to mind, just repent, ask his forgiveness, he will offer it, and then celebrate the Lord's Supper with us today. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much for your forgiveness. We know that many times we take things that are just mere traditions, things like worship styles or the place of a pulpit, and we give them too much importance in our life. Please forgive us for that. We ask that we would place you, Jesus Christ, first and foremost, center and front, place your word and what your word does clearly say as the most important thing in our life. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.